Hi, this is Pastor Andrew here at Oak Ridge Baptist Church in San Antonio, Texas. If you'd like to learn more about us, you can check us out online at www.orbcnet.com. Better yet, come by and visit us at the corner of Wurzbach and Vance Jackson in northwest San Antonio. I am a man who likes stuff. We are told that there are two types of people out there. There are people that enjoy experiences, and there's people that enjoy stuff. Now, I think unfairly, there is a bias towards people who like experiences. They're so much better than us hoarders who like stuff. But I like to think of my stuff not as possessions, but as capabilities. See, the thing that I want will give me the ability to do something. A new gun gives me the ability to practice a different part of the fine and ancient art of shooting. A new tool will give me the capability of building something amazing that will bless my family and be an heirloom of my home forever. A new pot will allow me to cook something. A new pair of shoes will allow me to run better. All of these things provide capability to me. Now, unfortunately, I have noticed um, a disturbing phenomena that happens as I pursue the completely legitimate pursuit of capabilities. And that is, I go through a life cycle. I discover that I want something, generally because the helpful people from Madison Avenue have helped me decide that this is something that I can't live without. Then everything in my life becomes bent around this one thing. I can remember many years ago, I decided that my life would not be complete if I did not have an air compressor. Don't laugh. Air compressors are incredibly useful tools. And so I researched air compressors, and I looked at air compressors, and I talked to my family about air compressors at length and in great detail until they began to mock me about air compressors. Apparently, I didn't know that there was an entire episode of VeggieTales that prominently displayed someone who wanted an air compressor. After much ridicule and abuse at the hands of my family, I received the desire of my heart. I was able to get a beautiful, yellow, DeWalt, upright air compressor. It was gorgeous in the way only a DeWalt tool can be gorgeous. It was functional and amazing. And yet, it did not complete my life the way that I thought that it would. In fact, I found that after I had the air compressor, it wasn't that magical. 
It took up space in my garage. It had to be maintained. And it had all these other things that I had to get for it in order to make it be able to work. But that's okay. Because I had new things and new capabilities to chase after. Oh, the desires of our heart, whether they are travel or love or possessions, so much of our lives are wrapped around getting that which we desire. And so I ask you this morning, how do we achieve the desire of our heart? This morning's message is going to be very practical. I am going to lay out for you one foolproof, never fail, always work, completely effective strategy to achieve the desire of your heart. But before you get that, you have to listen to the entire sermon. Ha, ha, ha. This morning... We're going to see as Paul gets the desire of his heart. After years of struggle and trial, he is going to achieve that which he has been hoping for. Our story starts with Paul shipwrecked on the island of Malta. After years of waiting, months of traveling, two weeks lost at sea in a storm, Paul finds himself washed up on the shore of a small island called Malta. We read in Acts 28, verses 1 and 2, after we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta, and the native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had begun to rain and was cold. See, the 40-mile trip that they were going to take from Fair Havens to Phoenix ended two weeks later on the island of Malta, which was scarcely a day's voyage from the great port of Syracuse in Sicily. Miraculously, they had been blown to exactly the place that they needed to be. No one had died, and they had all arrived safely on the shore. But the provision of God, the miraculous provision of God, didn't end there. See, they were greeted on the island of Malta, not by angry people or by disinterested people, but by friendly natives who wanted to take care of them. Now, the word that is used... In the Greek is actually the word barbaros. It's where we get the word barbarian from. Luke says the barbarians on the island treated us unusually well. Now we need to understand here, these are not relatives of Conan the Destroyer. right? They're not sitting around in loincloths around a fire asking each other what is good in life. right? Some of you know that movie. Some of you don't know that movie. I'm not recommending the movie, okay? Instead, barbarian was simply the way that Greeks and Romans described people that didn't speak Greek or Latin. Oh, my little thing came off there. 
Indeed, the Greeks referred to the Romans as barbarians because they didn't speak Greek. To a Greek, everybody else's language sounded like bar, 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 bar. And so they called them barbarians. Barbarians had a bad reputation. Indeed, to be shipwrecked on an island like this was to invite being victimized by the local population, many of whom made their living breaking up wrecks that they found along the coast. It was not unusual for people in their situation to be robbed, victimized, and often killed by the people that found them. And yet whatever else these people were, they were unusually kind. They did not rob them. They did not beat them. They didn't victimize them. Indeed, as they washed up on the shore, they found that the locals had prepared a fire for them. So obviously the locals had watched this ship founder on the reef. They had seen them getting out of the boat and trying to come to shore. And they had come together and built a great big fire so that these people, cold and wet from out of the sea, had a way to warm themselves. It is as if Paul, who has gone from one disaster and one crisis to another since he has entered Jerusalem, it is as if God is giving him a moment of peace right now. From the very beginning, Paul's time on Malta will be marked by God's favor and his provision. And we're going to see how much provision and how much favor in just a moment. See, within a few hours of arriving on the island, God is going to demonstrate his power with a miracle that grabs the attention of the local populace in a massive way. We read in Verse 3, that when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. Now, Paul is one of those guys that can't sit still. Right? He's one of those guys that always has to be doing stuff. When Paul did ministry, he also worked. He always put his hands to something. And so, washed up on the shore, exhausted after 14 days on the open ocean, tossed by a storm, Paul's first thought is not, I'm going to lay on the sand next to this fire and just rest. No, he gets up and he's like, okay, well, the fire needs to be fed. I'm going to go get some sticks. I'm, I'm, I'm going to throw some stuff in there. And, and as he's doing this, as he's being helpful, he doesn't realize that wrapped around one of the sticks is a viper. Probably cold, probably dormant right now in the winter. He picks it up, he throws it in the fire. And here's a secret, guys. I've watched a lot of Animal Kingdom. Snakes don't like being thrown in the fire. It's weird. It's a, it's a, it's a thing about snakes. And so they threw the snake in the fire. The, the snake revives, realizes, hey, I'm in the fire. This isn't cool. And it strikes out at Paul, latches onto his hand. When the native people saw the creature hanging from his hand, they said to one another, no doubt this man is a murderer. Though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. See, at all times and all places, human beings understand what justice is. 
And for these people on Malta, they understood that there was a God named Justice who would avenge those who would otherwise escape. The Furies, who would pursue murderers and make sure that they got what they deserved. But Paul didn't die. He shook off the creature into the fire and he suffered no harm. They waited around, waiting for him to swell up and die, as happens when you get bitten by a viper. You could see them all just kind of waiting like, when's he going to start dying? It's about to happen. You'll see. No good will come of this. But nothing happened. He didn't swell up. He didn't die. He had been bitten by a poisonous snake and nothing happened. And so they immediately went to the total opposite conclusion. He's not a murderer. He's a God. Now, this isn't the first time that Paul has been mistaken for a God. We know of at least one time, and probably more, where the supernatural things that occur around Paul were confused with Paul himself being divine. See, the divine protection that was afforded to Paul is confusing sometimes. Now, we have no doubt that Paul delivered against all expectation, provided for by the hand of God. We have no hesitation in saying that Paul probably very quickly disabused him of this idea that he was a god. The point, though, is that after months of uncertainty and struggle, Paul is at the end of his rope, and God comes to him in a powerful way. After a season of frustration, being imprisoned, being not believed, losing all control over his life, God has established that Paul will spend his time on Malta not as a miserable prisoner, but as a respected holy man and teacher. And this will play itself out over the next several months. The next thing that we see... In very quick succession, this part in the book of Acts is very quick, very rapid. A lot of things are happening. There's not a lot of theological components that are added in because all of these theological components have already been added. This isn't the first time Paul has been rescued. This isn't the first time people have thought he's a god. And this isn't going to be the first time that Paul embarked on an amazing healing ministry. See, after surviving the snake by Paul and his companions are taken to see the first citizen of the island, the man who was in charge, a notable person. We read in verse 7, Now in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. And it happened that his father lay sick with fever and dysentery, and Paul visited him and prayed and putting his hands on him, healed him. And when this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. They also honored us greatly. And when they were about to sail, they put on board whatever we needed. And we're not sure who Publius was. And we don't really know what his role on the island was, but based on his title, first citizen, we can assume that he was some kind of Roman official that was in charge of the government there. 
And so Paul just happens to wash up on a beach right next to the governor of the island's estate. And he just happens to find this man's father sick and to heal him. We read that, father, that Paul, Publius' father was sick. We think it was probably a gastric disease known as Malta fever. It came from drinking goat's milk, and there was a pathogen in goat's milk that would make you, make you sick and give you like this intestinal problem. It would last for years. It was a nasty, nasty disease. Incredibly uncomfortable, and it could be life-threatening. And Paul cured this man through the laying on of hands in prayer. And the news of the healing spread and the people came to him. And so he spends the winter not as a prisoner camped out on the beach next to the wrecked remains of the boat that was supposed to carry him to judgment. He doesn't spend it in a prison. He spends it in the governor's mansion healing all who came to him. Paul's time on Malta is marked by an outpouring of the Holy Spirit that brings him great favor in the eyes of the local people and the government officials. We need to understand what this is. Later on, Paul will say, I have learned how to cope with all situations, how to be rich and how to be poor, how to be successful and how to fail. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Paul rested in the provision of God. He should have spent his winter miserably. And yet through the provision of God, he is now honored, revered, and cared for. He is a Roman prisoner, and yet his captivity has not stopped him from healing or preaching or evangelizing. God, in fact, has hijacked Paul's captivity. Paul is conducting a missionary journey at the expense of the Roman government. That's what happens when we rest in the provision of God. Paul is not distraught. He's not depressed. He's not worried about the future. Paul is powerless, swept along by the events of the last few years. But it's not the Jews who are in control, and it's not the Romans who are in control. See, God can use us in amazing ways, regardless of our circumstances, when we rest in his provision. God is just as in control now as he was last year. See, this is an important lesson for us to learn right now as it feels like the world is out of control. He's still on his throne. The tomb is still empty. It may feel like we are simply pieces of flotsam carried along in a chaotic flood tide of riots and disease. But brothers and sisters, each and every one of you is a cherished thread lovingly woven into the tapestry of God's glory by the hand of the Almighty. So what should we do when things seem out of control? We should do what Paul did. 
serve God regardless of the circumstances, one task at a time. I spoke to some people this week. We talked about how important it is to just live in the moment right now. Not to think about what's going to happen next year or next month, but we take things one day at a time. We wake up in the morning. We seek to glorify God with everything that we can do. And we understand that at the end of the day, we are not in control of much. If we're honest with ourselves as Christians, we can see that this is one of the great blessings of COVID. One of the great blessings of the time that we live in is that it has taken from us the idol of our own self-sufficiency. That God has deprived us of the illusion, the great lie, that we are in control of our life. Because it is only when we admit that we have lost control, it's only when we admit that we never really had control, that we can begin to rely on God the way he always intended us to. Well, all things come to an end, and as the winter faded in the southern Mediterranean, the sea lanes opened back up, and Paul is now poised for the last leg of his journey. As Paul Paul prepares to leave, he's sent off by the Maltese with love and respect. We get this image of, of Paul, who is a prisoner, right? He's still a prisoner. There are still guards there that will kill him if he runs away. And yet, it's like he's carried to the boat from the governor's mansion. And they put him on board the boat and they give him provisions. You get this image. We have people at this church. One of, a, one of our dear families at the church has started a, a cobbler ministry. Right? And, and, and you can just see people. It's like, it's like this is sewn into the DNA of what it means to be a Christian to provision for one another. You can see little old uh, Maltese women bringing pans of whatever the Maltese equivalent of cobbler is to him and sending him off with a hamper of good things to eat and saying, now take care of yourself, Paul. Don't get shipwrecked again. And maybe he would reply, if this is what being shipwrecked is like, I'll get shipwrecked again. They send him off with love and with respect. And his journey begins again. After three months, Luke says, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island. Now, this is another one of these huge grain barges. This one actually made it to the main port in Malta, a place called Valletta. So they set out on this huge Alexandrian grain barge again to make their way to Rome. This was a ship of Alexandria with the twin gods as figureheads. This would have been Castor and Pollux on the front. A boat with gods on it to protect it. And yet the real protection for that ship is not those gods on the prow, but the god of Peter Peter and Paul who is carrying this man to his destiny Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days, and from there we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. 
Now, we're not sure exactly what that means. We know that Syracuse was a main port on the island of Sicily. Uh, when it said we made this circuit, what we think that means is maybe the winds weren't going the way that they should, and so they kind of had to tack around the island, but they made it across the incredibly dangerous strait between Sicily and Italy, and they docked at Regium. And after one day, a south wind sprang up, and on the second day, we came to Butoli. And there we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. After a long and grueling journey from Jerusalem, Paul and his company are allowed to rest in Putoli. He's invited to stay with Christian brothers that he finds there. Now this stop is probably because Julius wants to rest before making the remainder of the trip on foot. It's about 140 miles from Putoli to Rome. Rome doesn't actually have a port. Ostia, which is the port that was built for Rome, hadn't been built by, at this time. Right? So you had to unload everything and put it on carts and truck them into the city. The freedom that Paul gets, though, is due to the level of respect that Julius has for him. It's a sign of respect. He arrives in Italy not as a prisoner, but as an honored guest. Here we see again this great reversal. We're assuming that Julius the centurion is still escorting Paul and his companions, but Luke doesn't mention his name. We haven't heard Julius's name and since, since they had the wreck. We haven't heard his name mentioned because, not because he's died or been relieved. It's because he's no longer really important to the story. See, he's not in control anymore. He hasn't been in control until he, and since he made that decision to go against Paul's advice. Instead, he hasn't been acting so much as a jailer, as a travel agent, booking passage for Paul to Rome. In this, Julius joins a long and distinguished cast of pagan authority figures who thought that they were in control but were really just tools being used by God to build his kingdom. Pharaohs, kings, governors, soldiers, and assorted potentates have all thought themselves very important. They have all sought to control God's people. And in turn, they have been used to advance the very people they thought they were masters of. This is, again, important for us. Part of our feeling of being out of control is the idea that there are forces and authorities that can destroy us at their whim. But I'm going to tell you this, brothers and sisters, I have been to places where persecution actually exists. And the officials there are no more in control than they are here. I can remember going to Cuba and a dear friend of mine was a pastor there. And I can remember being astonished at the way that he dealt with the local officials, all of whom had the power to throw him into jail. And Cuban jail is not like Bear County lockup. This is the kind of jail you go to and you never leave. And they would call him in and they would interrogate him and they would ask him questions. And he was cool. He would even share the gospel 
with these men who were interrogating him. I asked him, I was like, man, what are you doing? He said, what's the worst they're going to do to me? Kill me? Those people weren't in control. These people were powerless to stop the growth of house churches, just as the Chinese are powerless to stop the spread of house churches, just as the Afghan government is powerless to stop the spread of the gospel in a closed nation where it is death to utter the name of Christ. And just as it is true there, it is true here. Where the government is powerless to stop God's people from worshiping. Whether you are New York Governor Como, who has threatened to go after churches who dare to meet and to worship, or you are on any other petty public official, you have no power over God's people. And any power that you have is given to you for a moment by God to be a tool for his glory. Often God uses people who think they are in control as his tool to exert his will and to build his kingdom. It is important for us to remember that. As we rest in the provision of God... Well, after staying seven days in the port of Petoli, they begin the 140-mile journey to Rome. And with these incredibly simple and yet powerful words, Luke draws this time of Paul on the road to an end. He says, and so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the form of Appius and the three taverns to meet us. And on seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier who guarded him. As they make their leisurely way along the well-trodden road called the Appian Way, They are greeted by groups of Christians from Rome who have come down to greet him and to bring him into their city. If along the journey Paul has ever doubted whether he would be welcomed by the Christians in Rome, that anxiety can be put to rest. These people have left their homes and have walked for days to find him so that he could be brought into Rome honored and celebrated by God's people. But is that, it is that very simple statement that I want to look at. And so we arrived in Rome. This journey is almost four years in the making, and it has taken Paul from one crisis to another, down a long and twisting road, and now it has come to completion. We see this Journey to Rome, kind of beginning in the mind of Paul all the way back in the 19th chapter of the book of Acts. We looked at it. As he's talking to the Ephesian elders and he has finished his incredibly successful ministry there, he he gets up one day and he goes to them and says, guys, I think I'm done here. I think our time together is over. I believe that the Lord is calling me to go to Rome. But first I have to go to Jerusalem. 
I have business to do. And from Rome, I'm going to go someplace else. After traveling through Macedonia and Greece on a farewell tour of churches, knowing inside that he will probably never see them again, he finds himself in Corinth. And he's tortured by the idea that in Jerusalem there is something terrible waiting for him, something that may stop him from reaching his goal. This is so overwhelming that he has to have a vision from God to tell him, you're going in the right direction, Paul. This is going to work out. So as he sits in Corinth, he writes a letter to the Romans. And I want you to listen to the language that he uses as he's talking to them. He says, first, I thank God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. He wants to meet them because he's heard about them. Because he's been impressed by them. For God is my witness, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I mention you always in my prayers. Asking that somehow by God's will I may now at least succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. That is, that we may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that I have often intended to come to you. But thus far I have been prevented. In order that I may reap some harvest among you, as well as among the rest of the Gentiles. Listen to the language. He's praying for them. He longs to visit Rome to give them spiritual gifts and to reap a harvest among them. It is the desire of Paul's heart to minister to the Romans. The deep longing that he has. And now, at long last, through the sovereign hand of an all-powerful God, Paul has reached Rome and attained his heart's desire. His desire has determined his path. His desire has determined the choices that he has been offered and the choices that he has made. His desire has driven him from one place to the next. And brothers and sisters, we are the same way. In ministry, as in life, the desire of our hearts will determine the road that we travel. Our culture and our society tell us increasingly that we are creatures of instinct. That everything is predetermined, driven by impersonal forces that we have no control over. And yet the Bible teaches us that we have agency and we have choice. That we are responsible for our actions and that our actions are based on our desires The Bible teaches us that the seed of human activity is at the heart and that we are creatures of desire. Paul Tripp eloquently laid this out. I can't do it better. He said, everything you choose, do, or say is the product of desire. Desire not only directs your choices, it also shapes your dreams. Desire forms your moments of greatest joy and your darkest grief. Desire makes you envy one person, 
while being glad you're not another. Desire keeps you awake at night or puts you soundly to sleep. Desire makes you willing to get up in the morning or causes you to be frustrated at the end of the day. Desire makes you expectant and hopeful in one moment and demanding and complaining in the next. Desire sometimes makes you as susceptible to temptation and to other times defends you against it. It can lift you up to God and it can make you a willing friend of the devil. Desire can make you celebrate or drive you to the pit of depression. Desire is your biggest problem and one of God's greatest graces. There is one thing for sure. Your life and your ministry will always be shaped by your desires. And so as Christians, we have to figure out how to face these things. How to interact with the desires that we have. If we are creatures of desire, then we need to figure out how to deal with the desires that we have. See, some see desire as the chief measure of good. What we want is good because we want it. Why would, how could something so wrong feel so right? I think it's a song or something. If loving you is wrong, I don't want to be right. You've got some, got some backslid people out there that know the song that I'm talking about. Y'all need to check, your, check yourself. That's not cool. This way of looking at things says that God wants us to be happy, and so what makes us happy is good. If it feels right, then we should do it. We should be hedonists who follow our desires. Some pastors have attempted to take this and use Christianity and turn it into some kind of magic that allows us to use the Holy Spirit to gain the desires of our heart. After all, God wants me to be happy, and he's all-powerful. So if I'm not happy, it's because I just haven't rubbed the genie the right way. Christianity then is a sort of magic that allows us to use the Holy Spirit to gain the desires of our hearts. If you will just pray hard enough and use the right formula when you ask, God who wants to bless you will pour out his blessings on you with health and wealth and prosperity. You just need to name your blessing and claim it. You just need to put out good thoughts and good stuff will come to you. We call that prosperity gospel. Others have taken the opposite approach and they see the Christian life as one struggle, one long struggle against desire. They almost take the opposite approach. If, it, if you want it, it must be bad. <laughs> right? The world is bad and we must rage against it. We're going to boycott everything. We're going to burn everything. We're going to run away from everything. Underlying this is a belief that we gain merit and the approval of God by denying our desires. They tell you, you don't have to like it. You just have to do it. In fact, it's better if you don't like it. That's how you know it's the right thing. That's not what we see in Scripture, though. We don't see any of those in, things in Scripture. On the one hand, we see a God who tells us that the human heart is wicked. As one author put it, the human heart is an idol factory. 
We can't trust our desires. Often our desires will lead us astray. Wicked, wicked from my mother's womb. But on the other hand, we also know that our God has made us and placed us in a world that he says is good. And that many of the things that we desire are good things. Marriage is good. A home is good. A job is good. All of these things are gifts from God to us. So what is the secret for achieving the desire of our heart? For gaining that which we want above all things? Well, I'm going to tell you. We find it in John chapter 15. Jesus talking to his disciples says this. He says, I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So the first step is abiding in God. Okay. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch that withers. And the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. For this is my Father, this, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples." So what is the secret to having the desires of your heart? The secret of having the desires of your heart is to match your desires to the heart of God. It's not getting God to give you the things that you want. It's wanting the things that God is prepared to give you. How do we do this? Well, it takes transformation. No one starts out desiring the things of God. We know that the lusts of the flesh and the lusts of the eyes and the pride of life, these are the things that we cling to. No, it takes transformation. When we abide in Christ, we abide in his presence, and we abide in his presence by being born again. You think Paul started out his life desiring to go to Rome to preach to the Gentiles? Of course not. He was a Pharisee. The Romans were the enemy of his people. And Rome was the heart of all idolatry. The very center of that which made people unclean. For a Pharisee, Rome was about the worst place you could ever possibly go. If God had come to Paul as he stood at the feet of Stephen, as people beat him to death with rocks, he would have pulled a Jonah and gone the opposite direction. No. Paul had to be remade in the image of God. His heart had to be transformed. He had to be changed. The desire of his heart had to be modified through the abiding presence of God. Year after year, as Paul gave his life to God in Christ, as he meditated on the word of God, he abided in the presence of Christ through prayer. He abided in the presence of Christ through the body of Christ, his church. And he allowed his word to abide in him 
meditating on Scripture so that his mind was changed. See, if we would gain the desires of our hearts, then we too must abide in Christ. We must, as Paul will say in Romans 13, not conform any longer to the patterns of this world, but instead be transformed by the renewing of our mind so that we will be able to test and approve God's will, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. We must take on to ourselves the mind of Christ. We must be changed. And then, then when our hearts desire that which God desires, when our mind is the mind of Christ and we are in conformity to his will, there is no force on the planet. There is no leader There is no government. There is no storm that can keep us from reaching our heart's desire. Brothers and sisters, what do you desire this morning? What is the desire of your heart? As Christians, we can have wrong desires. As Christians, we go through a period of time as the old dies and the new is brought to life. And we must not confuse the desires that come from Christ and the desires that are left over from this world. This is true even as a pastor. As a pastor, what is my desire? If I'm honest with myself, if I'm honest with you, I would say my desire is to be successful. My desire is to be the pastor of a large, quickly growing, vibrant church filled with cool people that have no problems. Right? Cool, beautiful people who all look to me for spiritual help. To be approved of by government officials and trusted by those in power. To be lauded and praised to feel important, if I'm honest. Those desires don't come from God. Those desires come from my twisted, broken human heart that seeks to elevate myself and not God. The desires of God are to humbly pastor to lead people to Christ, to weep with those who weep and to laugh with those who laugh, to do his business when and where he tells me to. What do you desire? What are the desires of your heart? Do they match what you see in Scripture? Are they to glorify God, to honor him with your actions, or are they to build yourself up? Is it money and power and prestige and beauty and eternal youth? Brothers and sisters, I don't know what your desires are this morning, but I do know this. The only way that you will achieve your heart's desire is when those desires conform to the will of God. And that will only come when, like Paul, you abide in his presence And trust him alone. Some of you out there this morning 
have no idea what I'm talking about. This seems like insanity to you. To ever go beyond the desires of your heart. But I want to tell you this morning, you who do not know Christ, your desires are tricky. They will abandon you. You will find that just as I did with my air compressor, that those things that you long for more than anything else in the world, those things that you believe will bring you happiness and joy and fulfillment, will leave you cold and wanting more. More things, more people, more love. You will chase these things your entire life and you will never be full. But I tell you this morning, there is one person that can grant you the desire of your heart. There's one person who can give you fulfillment. And that person is Jesus Christ. But while that fulfillment is free, it does not come cheap. It is a hard thing to lose who you are, to become who God wants you to be. But I will tell you this. When you give up everything that you have and all that you are and stretch out for the desires that God has placed in your heart, there is no joy like that to be had in all the world. Will you pray with me? Oh, Lord. God, we confess to you that we have too often followed the devices and desires of our broken and wandering hearts. God, we are prone to wander, prone to leave the God we love. Lord, we ask that you would transform the desires of our hearts that you would draw us to a place, that you would change our minds in such a way that we would seek you and your glory above all things. And Lord, we ask these things in the strong name of your son, Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Thanks for listening to this sermon, part of the teaching ministry at Oak Ridge Baptist Church. If you'd like more information about Oak Ridge, you can go to www.orbcnet.com.